Let us read again, turning this time in Matthew's Gospel to chapter 27. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 27. There to read the verses marked 32 through 56. So Matthew 27, beginning at verse 32. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders, hearing it, said, This man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly this was the Son of God. There were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Amen and Amen. May God bless to us his word and get to himself the glory and the praise.
My dear brethren and friends, great joy for us both to be with you once again. Let me ask you a question at the outset of the message this afternoon. What place in scripture can supremely be described at one and the same time without any contradiction as both glorious and terrible, as both holy and awful, or as one hymn writer puts it, as both lovely and mournful. What place? Only one. You know the one? Calvary. Calvary. Golgotha. Calvary. Listen. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. I want to direct you, the Lord helping me this afternoon in the ministry of God's word, to this very striking statement which takes us right to the very heart of the gospel. Matthew 27, part of which we've just read, is of course one of the four gospel accounts of the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. His death on the cross. And it's sometimes said that the, the New Testament gospels record the cross and the New Testament epistles interpret the cross. And certainly that's thoroughly true. So far as it goes, we're not here to quarrel with it. But it, it only takes us so far. Because certainly there's plenty of what we might call the interpretation, the explanation of the cross, even in the gospel narratives of the death of Christ at Calvary, including right here in our precious text. So for our text, I give you Matthew's gospel, chapter 27 and verse 45. We've just heard it, let's hear it again, Matthew 27 at 45. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. The title for this afternoon's message is The Darkness at Calvary. And we come in the spirit of a hymn which begins with this stanza. To Calvary, Lord... In spirit now, our weary souls repair to dwell upon thy dying love and taste its sweetness there. May that be our spirit as we come under the word and in the Lord's kindness may that be the blessing that he grants to us. I invite you to notice in the first place here what we'll call the surprise of the darkness. The surprise of the darkness. And I use that word surprise deliberately. I say to you that what happened here in our text, it was a complete 
surprise. It wasn't expected by those who were there. It wasn't foreseen. It wasn't seen coming along the tracks. It was completely and utterly a surprising event. There's no surprise, of course, about light turning into darkness. It happens every day. We know, boys and girls, don't we? That it's dark during the night, and it's light during the day. And so it is. And so it was from the beginning of creation. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And just as it began, that's how it continued. And you remember those years later on, but still in Genesis, of course, as part of the covenant that God established with Noah, of which the rainbow is the exquisite sign of his covenant grace and mercy and love was the, uh, the visible expression. You remember that after the universal flood, God said this, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, what comes next? Day and night. Got it? Day and night, darkness and light shall not cease. So, nothing unusual in essence about dark and light, light and dark. It happens every day, it'll happen today, light now. Thankfully at this season of the year we can still go home in the light, but later on in a few hours time it'll be dark. Nothing unusual about darkness turning to light or light giving way to darkness. So then, what's this great surprise of the darkness of our text? If these things happen all the time. Well, friends, can't you see, when did this darkness happen? At supper time? At bedtime? When did it happen? When was it dark? What are we told? From the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And when's that? From twelve o'clock midday to three in the afternoon. We might say from high noon to mid-afternoon. When it should, and this is the point, isn't it? When it should have been broad, bright Daylight. It became black dark. Pitch black. In the middle of the day. Isn't that a surprise? You're going to start arguing with me? Wouldn't you have been surprised if that had happened when you were having your lunch today? Black dark. Not just... Poor visibility, poor light, because there are dark clouds, thunder, storm, hail, lightning, various other treats that we've been experiencing lately. No. That's one thing. But pitch black, you know, like the blackest of night, without a star twinkling or shining. Real, real pitch. If that had happened when we'd been having our lunch, would we not have been alarmed, nervous, exercised, 
and in our word right now, surprised. And here on this occasion, wherever folk were, whatever they were doing, this surely would have come upon them as something totally unexpected. Ah, someone might say, I can explain that very easily. There's always one, isn't there? There's always one. Just as some are very quick to try and explain away, for example, the star by which the wise men were led to the Lord Jesus Christ. So folk are very keen to do the same with this darkness, claiming that it was, it was an eclipse of the sun or some unusual astronomical occurrence which can be explained by science, to which I respond, not so fast. For a start, this occasion surrounding the death of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross at Calvary, it took place at Passover time. And that was the time of full moon. And anyway, talking of eclipses of the sun, we don't have them that regularly. Some will remember them and in their lifetime, others will not. We in our family always remember one, admittedly from a while back now, but uh, we remember it freshly now. In 1999, those who were around in 1999 will perhaps recall it. Where were you when that took place? Can you remember? We were on a family holiday on the Isle of Skye. And, and the eclipse of the sun then, it was a very gradual thing. People would be looking out of their windows thinking, is it getting a bit darker? I think it is. And somebody else in the family perhaps would chime up. No, no, it isn't. And you could see from the television pictures, because they had programs about it uh, all day long, you could see that it was noticeably darker. Some parts of the country, especially as I recall in Cornwall, were pretty, uh, pretty aware of the darkness. For us up on sky, there wasn't much change to see at all. I remember all through the day, whenever we watched anything on the television, I was just longing for one of the commentators to say, the heavens declare the glory of God. Not a whisper. Not a whisper. But there we are, we'll let that pass. But you see, what happened here in our text, it wasn't as if suddenly... Something happened, or did it? Is it darker, or isn't it? No, rather, it was as if, with no warning, with no one looking out in advance to see what might happen, with no opportunity for the broadcasters to plan their schedules around it for weeks beforehand, no, all of a sudden, all the lights went out, all the power was cut off, if we could use such a, such a basic illustration as that. Just like that. At the flick of a switch, we might say. Light here one moment, light gone the next. Everything in darkness. And over all the land, it can be rendered over all the land or over all the earth. We won't uh, go into that uh, on this occasion. We just take it as it's before us here, over all the land. In other words, it tells us that it was extensive 
and it was uniform. People who were going about their business, whether good or evil, in public or in private, when all of a sudden everything blacked out. Indeed, if we were to translate this as tightly and as literally as we could, it would be that now from the sixth hour, darkness occurred over all the land until the ninth hour. Just that. Darkness occurred. It happened. One moment it wasn't, then it was. And I tell you, dear brethren and friends, that what we have before us in this surprise of the darkness, it was the work of God. Just as, for that matter, as we referred to it earlier, just as was the star, the guiding star, which led the the wise men, the magi from afar, to the house where the Lord Jesus Christ was. Moved on from the stable there where the shepherds went and he was in the house. They weren't all piled in together like sort of New Year sales. Different occasions. Shepherds visited the stable. Wise men came later to the house. And uh, the, the, the Lord, he, he directed the star. That then, and this here in our text, was the sovereign, solemn, miraculous, highly significant work of God. In a phrase, God did it. God did it. Just before we we move on to the second matter, I I just want to highlight this with with, with some contrasts. I want you, uh, I want very quickly just to, just to, to contrast three other things that belong together concerning the Lord Jesus with this one. Think For example, we've mentioned the wise men, we've hinted at the shepherds. Think of the shepherds. I would have loved to have been there on the hillside with the shepherds, wouldn't you? You know, it's a real wish you were here experience for me. Uh, But I wasn't, but I can read all about it and I love that narrative. And there they were, going about their shepherding. When all of a sudden, you remember, an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with fear. And, of course, the place was, was bright with the dazzling, the dazzling nature of these holy, these celestial, these, these heavenly hosts. The whole place was lit up. Or think, in the course of the Lord Jesus Christ's ministry, of his transfiguration, upon the mountain. And what are we told? He'd taken Peter, James and John up a high mountain with him. And we're told earlier in Matthew's Gospel that Jesus was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. Again, what a, what a privileged occasion for those three of the twelve disciples to be present. Or take it on to that for which we were praying earlier, and hopefully as believers we we long for the hastening of, the glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, the second coming. And that won't be some quiet affair, some dark affair. No, how will he come? In his Father's glory, in the presence of the holy angels, at the sound of the trumpet. It'll be a glorious occasion, a bright appearance, a, 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 a dazzling exp- uh, uh, appearance. And so you see, just in those three instances that are all full of light and splendor and glory, 
the shepherds on the hillside, the transfiguration on the mountaintop, the second coming still to come. Come, Lord Jesus, we pray. You contrast those three with this one. When from the sixth hour, darkness occurred over all the land until the ninth hour. When the brightness of the day was suddenly replaced by the blackest imaginable darkness of night. So just think how terrified the people must have been at that. Just as surely you and I would have been if we'd been there. The surprise of the darkness. But then in the second place, the meaning of the darkness it's what we under, want to understand, isn't it, brethren? The meaning of the darkness. Why did it happen? We said God did it, but we ask reverently, why did God do it? Why was the Lord Jesus Christ, the light of the world, placed for these three hours in utter darkness? Why? Why did the Father suspend the Son in darkness on the cross at midday. Why is there this remarkable contrast that we've just spoken of between Bethlehem transfiguration and the second coming on the one hand and now Calvary on the other hand? Well, let me give you just a little word on each. Five. Are you up for that? Five of the chief reasons to give us the meaning, the true meaning of the darkness at Calvary. Count them through, boys and girls, and make sure I don't miss any of them, all right? One, two, three, four, five. First reason. Judgment was being delivered. Darkness, again and again in the Bible, is the color, the symbol of judgment. It's part of scripture language for judgment, darkness. Remember, in Exodus, the plague of darkness was visited upon Egypt shortly before the actual exodus of Israel themselves at Passover time. Some of the Old Testament prophets like Amos, Joel and, and Zephaniah they all link together darkness with judgment. And so it is here at Calvary. What judgment is this, you ask? Well, here before us in our text is God's judgment upon mankind's sin, unbelief, rebellion, ungodliness, we're told straight between the eyeballs in Scripture, aren't we? There is no distinction, no exception. Nobody missed out, left out, forgotten. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God, the perfection of God, the holiness of God, as well as a great shortfall in our glorifying of God, which is our great business, our chief end, to glorify God. And to enjoy him forever. And we're marked by failure. It's stamped all over us. 
This is God's judgment upon the sin of the world. Calvary that day was an awesome and an awful and a terrible scene of divine judgment. As God visited the earth, it was the Apostle Paul speaks of in one place as his severity. The severity of God. It was severe, in other words. It's severity. And I ask you, dear ones, would you understand God's view of sin? Behold it here. Would you understand God's view of your sin? And my sin? View it here. In the darkness at Calvary. That's the first reason for this darkness at Calvary. Second reason, salvation was being accomplished. That same scripture mentioned a moment ago, it's in Romans 11, in which Paul speaks of the severity of God, also speaks of his, his goodness or his kindness. You can translate it either way. The goodness and severity, the kindness and severity of God. He who is severe in his judgment upon sin is full of goodness and kindness, and mercy, and grace to sinners. And it doesn't matter whether you're the age of some of you dear boys and girls there at the back, or the age of any of the rest of us. God is kind to sinners. God, Scripture tells us, has shown his love towards us in this that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And it's never too early, dear young ones, to have the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. Then you'll have longer to enjoy him, and longer to love him, and longer to serve him. And any of us who are not so long, if you're not saved, not so, not so young rather, if you're not saved, High time to have your sins forgiven. High time to be reconciled to God. High time to know that you're not going to hell, but that Christ has purchased you for heaven. You see, the goodness, the kindness of God is here. In the very scene of judgment, salvation shines forth. You ask, what was God doing at Calvary? Let me tell you. He was working out his eternal plan, and that's what it was. Not something just dreamt up. It was his eternal plan from before the creation of the world to have a people for himself, belonging to himself forever and forever and forever, and to be with him forever in heaven's glory. His eternal plan of grace to sinners. Here, under the cover of this darkness what has often been called the Great Exchange, was taking place. Paul speaks of it in this way. God, that's the Father, made him, that's Christ the Son, who knew no sin, Christ absolutely without sin, we, Scripture insists on that, and, and so do we as an article of faith, 
He the Father made him the Son who knew no sin to be sin for us, to be counted a sinner, to be numbered amongst the transgressors, just like us. He made him who knew no sin to be sin, that we, who are the sinners and who deserve the judgment, might be the righteousness of God in and through him, clothed in Christ's righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne sins forgiven guilt removed past blotted out and we've all had one friends haven't we we've all had one but what a thing made new creatures in Christ Jesus and it was all being made provision for through this darkness at Calvary. One preacher has said of this, the most amazing transaction in the history of the world was taking place here. Oh, what terrible severity in judgment, but oh, what marvelous kindness in providing for our salvation. It's that hymn that begins, isn't it? Jesus, our Saviour, to Bethlehem came. But not only to Bethlehem to stop there. He went on to Calvary. And that's the heart of the matter. Third reason to explain this darkness. Prophecy was being fulfilled. So much prophecy. Since the Lord Jesus Christ is so, mu so very much the center and the sum and the substance of Old Testament prophecy and New Testament fulfillment. But let me just take one, uh, one Old Testament uh, prophecy. There's, there's something very deep and remarkable that we can only just mention in passing, but we must at least do that. In the ninth chapter of the prophecy of Daniel, deep stuff here, not easy to understand. But we can get this bit in the ninth of Daniel. We're speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, and this is a prophetic reference before it happened to what was going to happen in the darkness at Calvary. The Lord Jesus came to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and, uh, and to anoint a most holy place. And then a couple of verses later, the Lord Jesus Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, we're told again by way of prophecy, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. Hang on to that, brethren. An anointed one, referring to the Lord Jesus Christ, shall be cut off and shall have nothing. I said just one reference, but uh, why just have one when we can have two? There's just this parallel, really, in the great 53rd of Isaiah which speaks of the Lord Jesus Christ being cut off. You see, same idea, cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. Cut off, you see, cut off and having nothing. A forceful way, in other words, of expressing the Lord Jesus Christ's utter rejection by both God and man. Have you got that? Dare we say it? Christ's utter rejection by God, the Father, and by man. 
says one commentator. In that hour of blackness, he, Christ, had nothing. Nothing but the guilt of sin for all those for whom he died. Utterly forsaken, he was cut off. Cut off. Prophecy was being fulfilled. And the Lord Jesus Christ there was left completely for a season alone. Fourth of the five reasons. You still there, dear ones, at the back? One, two, three, we've come to number four. Mystery was being concealed. Mystery was being concealed. What mystery? Well, the mystery of the Father being pleased, Scripture says, to bruise or to crush his Son. Have you ever grappled with that one? The mystery of the Father, in another Scripture, not sparing his own Son, but giving him up, delivering him up for us all, the Son of his love. He who before he became the word made flesh and came to earth. He, he dwelt eternally in the bosom of the Father. He was daily the Father's delight, he says, uh, tells us himself in the 8th of Proverbs. The Father gave him up, delivered him up to the smiting of the cross. The mystery of the Son being so deprived of heavenly comforts that he cried out, and remember that verse 46 follows straight on from our verse 45, he cried out at about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, opening lines of the 22nd Psalm, which renders as, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Here is the Son, who eternally was the supreme joy of the Father, and whose supreme joy himself was the Father. Yet his Father's face was hidden as darkness and desertion filled his soul and surrounded him. It's as if in these three hours, and, and we can't understand it, we can't enter into it, but it's true. That for this season, within the triune God, three persons in one God. That's why it's such a mystery. Oh, we're on holy ground. But for these three hours, the Son, the second person of the Godhead, was completely without, utterly deprived, of all the comforts of the Father, the first person of the Godhead, and all the comforts of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead. All these things for this three-hour season were denied him. He was deprived of them. He was, remember that verse from Daniel, he was cut off. And he had nothing. And I dare to say to you this afternoon, dear ones, that this aspect of things was the worst thing of all for the Saviour as he hung on the cross at Calvary. As if there weren't plenty of other worst things. But surely this was the worst 
thing of all, for there to be this, this, this sundering between the persons of the Godhead for a season. So I say to you, it wasn't the crown of thorns, it wasn't the scourging and the beating, it wasn't the humiliation and the spitting, it wasn't the agony of the nails or the searing pains of the body. Desperate those all, though those all were. But surely this was the worst of things for the Saviour. To be separated from the Father and the Holy Spirit. To be forsaken of God. Verse in Proverbs puts it, A man's spirit will endure sickness, but a crushed spirit who can bear? And it all happened in the darkness, this sundering, this separation, this deprivation. It all happened in the darkness. There could be no prying human eyes. And the fifth and final reason, we've made it to number five. The fifth and final reason, lots more no doubt, but five will do for us. To seek to explain the meaning of the darkness. Number five, evil was being conquered. Because in these hours of darkness, the Lord Jesus Christ, he battled with Satan. But hear this, he triumphed gloriously. Gloriously. He, he fought the powers of darkness, of which Satan is the head. Here's old Spurgeon. We haven't heard from him all day. Well, not this afternoon, anyway. All the powers of darkness in their divine battalions hurled themselves against the almighty Son of God. The conflict was at its height. It had been going on all through the earthly ministry but of the Lord Jesus. But the conflict between Christ and Satan that the book of Revelation is so full of, it was at its height during these three hours. This was, as it were, Satan's hour. The hours of the power of darkness. It appeared. It appeared. And it might have appeared as if Satan had the upper hand and had won. But no, no, he hadn't at all. And if he thought he had, that's where he was wrong. The truth is that the Lord Jesus Christ in dying and then in being buried and going into the grave, into the tomb and rising again on the third day, the Lord Jesus Christ, he defeated Satan in his own domain and rose again carrying captivity captive, as the psalmist declares and the apostle quotes. Of this I say the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is the proof. And alone not all the seven sayings of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross are all recorded in any one gospel. They are spread, different ones, across the four. Another reason to be glad that we have Mark, Luke and John as well as Matthew. We are not those who would say that one gospel is would do. We're glad to have four. And in the fullness of things, not much time elapsed. Between the Lord Jesus Christ's cry here, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Between that and tetelestai. And that means it is finished. It is finished. And it was that cry, it is finished, which came immediately before the Lord Jesus Christ bowed his head 
and yielded up his spirit. I ask you, dear brethren and friends, could there be a more meaningful darkness than this? When judgment was being delivered, salvation was being accomplished, prophecy was being fulfilled, mystery was being concealed, and evil was being conquered. The anointed one was cut off and had nothing. But you know there's a glorious paradox here, isn't there? That in that very moment when the Lord Jesus Christ lost all, in fact he won all, he won all. And not just for himself, but for us, for you and me. The surprise of the darkness, the meaning of the darkness, the final word as we uh, prepare to draw stumps, the glory of the darkness, the glory of the darkness. We must just say a word on this before we go. Because it didn't stay dark forever. It lasted, we're told, from the sixth to the ninth hour, twelve through three. Long enough. But then at the ninth hour, the Lord Jesus Christ spoke, and it's generally reckoned that, that, that when he spoke about the ninth hour with this word from Psalm 22, that's when light returned. It was at the end of the three hours. And this shows us the glory of the darkness. And, and glory is not a misplaced word to use, not even after all we've said thus far. Behold here the peculiar darkness, the peculiar glory of this darkness, is that it set forth the glory of our Saviour, Christ triumphant, ever reigning Saviour, Master, King. And the glory of our salvation, that we would be made new in Christ, kings and priests to serve our God, adopted children, sons and daughters of the living God, citizens of heaven, heirs of grace, all the wealth of the Father's estate coming to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. What a glory, what a saviour, what a salvation. There was a place... On the Firth of Forth in Scotland at one time, called Blackness Castle. Doesn't sound the sort of place you'd go for a holiday, neither was it. Blackness Castle. And there, dear Christian friends, not least in those great days of that godly company of men and women, the Scottish Covenanters. In those days they were incarcerated, they were cast into prisons and dungeons for their faithfulness to Christ and to the gospel. And one choice servant of God who ended up at one time, in one season, in Blackness Castle, was someone you might or might not have heard of, John Welsh of Air. John Welsh of Air. And on one occasion, a noble, believing Christian lady called Lady Melville of Ross wrote to Welsh, by way of encouragement to him and thereby to his companions in, uh, in imprisonment there, she wrote to Welsh and she bade him and encouraged him to be thankful that, and here are her words, to be thankful that he was only in the darkness of blackness and not in the blackness of darkness. Get it? What a difference. What an eternal difference. The sin which darkened Christ and made him die, our sin and that of the whole world, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. 
And dear friends, I have to say to you that if you are still without the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, then you are still in the darkness. But maybe more significantly than you ever realized, the darkness is still in you. But if the Lord Jesus Christ is your Savior and you know it, then you have, Scripture says, been called out of darkness into his marvelous light. And it's this death of Christ in the darkness that I proclaim to you from the word of God this afternoon. And so I have to ask you, as if I was asking each of you going round you by name, some of your names I know, some I don't, I won't try it, but take it as if I was going round you in an affectionate pastoral concern for each one of you, boys and girls, and everybody else. I must ask you, is this precious crucified Jesus your saviour or is he not? Think of that scene at Calvary that day before we leave it. There was, the end of our reading tells us in verse 55 and 56, there was the godly, believing, adoring company mentioned there, as well as someone who isn't mentioned here but is elsewhere, John the beloved disciple, there at the cross, Mary's mother, and so on. Uh, Jesus' mother, Mary, and so on. There was that company, but there were all the others who wanted nothing to do with Christ and would not have Christ have anything to do with them. Are you with the godly believing company? Or are you with the rest of the bunch? Which are your companions this afternoon? Will you join with those who believe and rejoice and delight in the Savior and are saved and blessed and have joy and peace in believing from the God of hope? Or will you be with the others? Will you join with the mockers and spitters? Will you assist those who hammered in uh, the, the nails into Jesus' hands and feet? Will you raise your voice with those who, who slandered and accused him? Will you side with his abusers and his enemies? Which? What will you do? How do you stand? What's your position? Who are you with? The godly or the ungodly? The believing or the unbeliever? At the end of the day, the lovers or the haters of Christ. What is your response this afternoon to the one who died for sinners to bring us to God? And to the one who rose again to give us eternal life and a home in heaven? What's your response this afternoon to the one who says to you again, I say again because he, maybe he said it to you before, but you haven't bothered before. But he comes and says it to you again. Come to me. Hear that? Come to me, he says. Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden. And I will give you rest. Rest, comfort, blessing, salvation, heaven for your souls. That's what it's all about. So just consider. If the darkness through which the Savior passed was so very dreadful, then how great must the darkness of sin be? And how this truth should stir us all to a deeper 
horror at our own sins and examination more closely of our own hearts. Remember this stanza that someone wrote and we sometimes sing, no doubt? Well might the sun in darkness hide and shut his Christ's glories in when Christ the mighty maker died for man the creature's sin. And so as I close, I really will close this time, I repeat the question for a moment, from a moment ago. Dear ones all, young and old alike, is this precious Lord Jesus Christ your Saviour? Or is he not? You have to give an answer. You have to give an answer. But when you do, dear souls, when you do, be sure that the answer that you give is one that you can live with, one that you can die with, one that you can face the day of judgment with, and one that you can spend eternity with. Amen.